On more than one occasion, we've welcomed guests to this show who engage in speculative or useful fiction. Today's guests are the latest. Their new book, titled 2034, looks at what a war between the United States and China might look like in the not-so-distant future. They are Elliot Ackerman and Admiral James Tavridis, this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week, we're joined by two accomplished authors who have collaborated on a remarkable new book, 2034, a novel of the next world war. Admiral James Stavridis spent more than 30 years in the United States Navy with assignments that included the commander of U.S. Southern Command and Supreme Allied Commander at NATO. And Elliot Ackerman is an accomplished author who has been a finalist for the National Book Award. Earlier in his life, he served as a United States Marine and was a White House Fellow. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for being with us. What a pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, well, Jim. you know, 2034, again, is the book, a novel of the next world war. Uh, I mentioned before we started recording that once I picked it up, I couldn't put it down. Uh, Admiral, would you like to just give us sort of that 30,000 foot overview of what the book is? Let me actually spin the question slightly about why this book, and then Elliot, I think, has the best grasp on the characters. So I'll start by just saying, people ask me, why a novel? And, and the answer is, I came to write a novel about the future by looking at the past. And what I mean by that, Jim, is that I looked at this very rich body of Cold War literature uh, from the US-Soviet times. Dr. Strangelove, On the Beach, The Bedford Incident, Red Storm Rising, on and on. And it occurred to me that one of the reasons we avoided stumbling into an actual war, why did it stay a cold war, was because we could imagine how terrible the consequences would be. So I had this idea of writing a, a cautionary tale a la Cold War literature took it to my publisher, my editor, Scott Moyers, um, knowing that I had never written a novel. This is my 10th book, but first novel. Scott Moyers suggested a collaboration between myself and a truly accomplished novelist, finalist for the National Book Award, my very good friend and fellow Fletcher graduate, Elliot Ackerman. So if I could, I'd, I'd turn to Elliot to kind of sketch the characters, which in many ways sets up the novel. Elliot. Yeah, sure. Um... Just sort of as Jim mentioned, uh, we already, before this book came about, shared an editor at Penguin Press. Uh, and uh, we also both are graduates from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And when the Admiral was the dean there, uh, he had me come and serve as the writer in residence for one semester. And I just, I bring that up because when he sent me an email, I said, well, what are my duties going to entail? There was a list of bullets. And one of the bullets was talk with the dean about books when he feels like it. <laughs> so, uh, we already had a friendship and I think very much knew one another's sensibilities uh, when it came to the types of books we enjoyed uh, reading and the types of books, you know, we, we both wrote. And, um, and on this book, we were immediately in alignment that we wanted a story that obviously engaged with all these geopolitical themes, 
but one that was character driven and really structured. The book is structured around five principal characters. Uh, and I'll just kind of mention that to you because it gives you an entry point into the book. So when the book opens, you meet the first of those characters and she is Commodore Sarah Hunt, a career female Navy officer. You meet her, she's on the bridge of her ship, the USS John Paul Jones, and she is leading two other ships on a freedom of navigation patrol through the South China Sea, which are contested waters, uh, at least from the Chinese point of view. The Chinese claim them to be territorial waters, whereas the rest of the international community uh, asserts that they are in fact international waters. And this is a body of water that is half the size of the continental United States, it's vast. So we today uh, run these freedom of navigation patrols and on one of these patrols, Commodore Hunt comes across a fishing trawler that seems to be in duress with dark smoke billowing off of the bridge and she goes to investigate. When she goes to investigate, she finds out that it is anything but a fishing trawler. So now sort of cut to halfway around the world, the above the Straits of Hormuz, a body of water uh, that abuts Iran. And we meet the second of our principal characters and that is Marine fighter pilot, Major Chris Wedge Mitchell. And he is flying in a state-of-the-art stealth fighter right up against Iranian airspace. And he is lamenting the fact that, you know, he doesn't really feel like much of a pilot at all because these new aircraft, like they basically fly themselves. And just as he's sort of lamenting that this golden age of aviation is finished, his aircraft literally begins to fly itself. The controls are non-responsive and it diverts into Iranian airspace on a glide slope down to Bandar Abbas airfield in Iran. Um, now we go to our third principal character who is in the White House, and that is Dr. Sandeep Sandy Chowdhury, a first generation Indian American who is working on the National Security Council staff. And he is monitoring these two developing crises, the one in the South China Sea and the one above the Straits of Hormuz simultaneously when his telephone rings. On the other end of the line is our fourth principal character, which is Admiral Lin Bao, a Chinese admiral and the military attache of the United States. And he has a message for Chowdhury and the White House, which is that these two incidences are in fact not unrelated, they are interrelated, that the Chinese government will no longer endure these freedom of navigation patrols for the South China Sea. And at that moment, a massive cyber attack is launched on the United States in which the basically the entire eastern seaboard is in effect blinked. The power goes off, it comes right back on. And when the power does come back on, things aren't working as they once did. Uh, and that basically, no spoilers there, that's basically sort of the first 20, 30 pages of, of 2034. You know, I would only add that when the second chapter opens, you meet the last and fifth principal character in the book. Who, which is Brigadier Qasim Farshad, and he is a veteran of the Iranian paramilitary Quds Force. And when Wedge is forced down on Bandar Abbas airfield, waiting for him on the tarmac is this grizzled Iranian general uh, who is a veteran of the forever wars, except he fought on the opposite side of the United States in places like Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. So really through those five characters, as the reader, you're taken into this world of 2034 as we watch the most powerful nations on the globe kind of sleepwalk into a massive war.
Well, so we're going to do our best today to avoid any spoilers because the book is really worth the read. Um, uh, Admiral, you know, you mentioned that you what you mentioned why you wanted to tell this story or this kind of story. I guess w the question that leaps to mind, given your background, given your career in the United States Navy, are you worried that that this is a path? that we're on? Is there some sort of change in the way America engages with the world that, that your, that your advocacy is the wrong, is the wrong word, but that you're, that you're, that you're talking about in this book? I'm, I'm very worried and I'm worried because of current events. Um, we see China in the United States with a rich basket of disagreements, cyber, trade, tariffs, human rights, the treatment of Uyghurs, uh, governance of Hong Kong. Um, it goes on and on, and it keeps coming back to the South China Sea, to this dispute over this enormous body of water full of oil, gas, fisheries, surrounded by vulnerable neighbors. Um, it's a dangerous fact set. And then secondly, Jim, I think that history is against us. And what I mean by that, I'm sure you've had on this show, uh, Graham Allison of Harvard University, who wrote a terrific book called Destined for War, can the U.S. and China avoid the Thucydides trap, the Thucydides trap named after the ancient Greek historian. I know that because I'm ancient in Greek. <laughs> <laughs> the Thucydides trap is the situation in which an established power is challenged by a rising power in a global situation. He goes back 2,500 years ago to Athens and Sparta and plays it forward. And out of 18 instances, two thirds of the time, established power, rising power leads to a global war. When did it happen last? 100 years ago. Established power, Great Britain, rising power, Kaiser's Germany. How'd that turn out? World War I, Great Depression, World War II, call it 80 million dead in the 20th century. So history is against us. The fact set is against us. What I want to do is sound a call that says, if we don't figure out how to reverse engineer this thing, how to look out 10 to 15 years and walk back to the present and make changes both on our side and on Beijing's side, the chances are way better than even that we will end up in a catastrophic war. That's what we want to avoid. Elliot, the Admiral spoke at the beginning of the power of story in, in shaping opinion. He cited many of, of the various works uh, during the, the Cold War. Talk about the power of a novel in terms of storytelling, in terms of both informing the public. This is, of course, all in addition to scholarly research and, and other papers alike. But the, the novel has a unique power. Talk about that. You're a novelist. I think one of the things that the novel really does that other mediums don't effectively do is it really allows you to plot the interior lives of characters uh, in a way that you can't necessarily do, uh, you know, in film, for instance. So, uh, you know, again, the the story that we're telling, you know, the the characters such as Admiral Lim Bao, you know, this this career Chinese naval officer, or Kasim Farshad, uh, you know, a hard bitten veteran of the forever wars who fought on the Iranian side. You know, these are these are individuals who at first blush might seem uh, very foreign to readers, uh, might seem to even be antagonistic of U.S. interests. But I would tell you, you know, in the writing of this book, I think I speak for I would say I speak for both of us where we found 
you know, really deep connections with many of these characters who, at least on the outside, don't resemble us. So, um, you know, again, I'm a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, there are plenty, uh, there are plenty of overlaps between myself and Kasim Farshad. Just like there are also plenty of overlaps between myself and uh, Major Chris Wedge Mitchell, who is a Marine fighter pilot. So I think that what the novel does is by ma mapping the interior lives of the characters, it also allows the reader to to find those same areas of overlap. And I and I hope that you know anyone picking up this book would see loud and clear that you know th there's no villain in this book in terms of the characters. You know our ambition was very much to draw five sympathetic characters so that when you are reading the chapters that are told from the perspective of a Lin Bao, you know, he as a character is stepping onto the stage and he's making his case to you, the reader, as though he's making his case uh, before God. And so really, if there's a villain in this book, the only villain is war itself. Uh, and that's something that we clearly needed to avoid. And uh, simply because you, you mentioned the Cold War, Wayne, I think that we had told many stories uh, in books and in films we alluded to during the Cold War, and so did our Soviet counterparts. And although we couldn't agree upon much, the one thing all of the imagining we did on that conflict led us to was the conclusion that neither us nor the Soviets wanted to fight that fight. And I don't think the same amount of imaginative work has gone into imagining what a conflict with China would look like. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. We're joined this week by two remarkable authors, whose life experiences are as fascinating as the novel they've written together. Admiral James Stavridis was the Supreme Allied Commander at NATO, and earlier in his career led a carrier battle group in combat. Elliot Ackerman is a combat veteran of the United States Marine Corps and an accomplished author who's previously been nominated for the National Book Award. Together, they are the authors of 2034, a novel of the next world war. You can find both men on Twitter. Admiral Stavridis is at... Stavridis J, that's S-T-A-V-R-I-D-I-S-J. And Elliot is at Elliot Ackerman, spelled E-L-L-I-O-T-A-C-K-E-R-M-A-N. We always like to talk craft uh, on this show. And Admiral, let me start with you. What was the process of collaboration like between you and Elliot, how did it work? How did it unfold? Was it meeting in person, drafts back? Give us, give us that overview, and then Elliot, you can chime in uh, after the admiral finishes. Yeah, I think there's no set path for collaborating on writing, um, be it nonfiction or fiction. And uh, I'll describe ours with the point being made that there are a lot of different ways you could do this. Um, I had the initial idea 
Um, and I wrote a detailed outline, took it to my editor who said, in effect, Stavridis, you're a, you're a nice guy. Um, you've written nine books, but you're not a novelist. Let's find a novelist <laughs> you can work with. And uh, I was lucky that it was Elliot. And by the way, our editor had no idea that we had this fairly deep pre-existing relationship. So for us, it was, I, I would say, a very joyful collaboration, um, given particularly the subject matter of the book. That's somewhat ironic. Anyway, we had the uh, detailed outline, and then we did get on the phone, get on Skype. This is during pandemic times, of course, and we're going back and forth, uh, and we agree verbally on the first chapter. And there's only six chapters in the book in a coda, so we agreed verbally on the characters and the sketch, and then Elliot took the first crack at it, um, did a terrific job, and then he and I just went back and forth Till we were both happy with the first chapter and then rinse and repeat six more times, go through uh, sketch meetings, if you will, discussions, where are these characters going? And, and we didn't have, I wouldn't say a, a precise idea how the, how the storyline was gonna turn out, but it, it landed fairly close to the broad strokes of the initial outline that I had. Elliot, what can you add to that? Yeah, I would, I would just offer, I think that's a, you know, we had sort of the, um, an overall conception of the book. We sat down and met and we knew what the first chapter was going to be. We outlined that in like a, a great deal of detail. Um, and then, you know, then again, like we, I think a good analogy is we would sketch it out, you know, so all the lines were on the sheet of paper Then someone would go color first. I would sort of be the first one to color and then, you know, the Admiral would color and we'd go back and forth until we sort of liked how it looked. And I think, but one of the joys of writing a novel, uh, in my experience doing it is, you know, that that surprising things happen. It's like one of the reasons I like doing my work is, I, you know, I'll be sitting there at my desk one day and the characters will be taking on this life of their own and they will do things that literally surprise you or, um, you know, or, you know, again, no spoilers, but, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, for instance, Wedge likes to smoke Marlboro Reds and um, that becomes significant in the book in ways that, you know, we could never have sat there and plotted out. It's just he starts doing things and then we start to see what he or what other characters in the book are doing. And to me, that's always kind of the, the fun of fiction is that the, you know, the, the, the people that you create in the book really come alive and they start doing some of the work for you. And can so, I add one thought to that, sure. which is just um, when we were getting ready to start the book tour, when the book came out, I hadn't really sat and read the book cover to cover since we'd written it and sort of sent it off to the editor, it's about a year process from when you send that final draft. And so I thought, well, I'm going on a book tour. I better reread this thing. <laughs> and I read the whole thing. And, and here's my point. By the end of the book, I was, I was very emotional about the ending of a couple of these characters. I, it, it was deeply felt to me. And I hope other readers have that reaction. And by the way, Admiral Lin Bao Perhaps it's counterintuitive because there's a, a woman surface warfare destroyer officer whose career looks fairly like mine. She commands Enterprise Carrier Strike Group, as I did, for example. But the character who touched me the most and has stayed with me the most is the Chinese ad, Lin Bao, um, for a variety of reasons. He's complicated. He's stuck in Washington and doesn't want to be there. I had six tours of duty in the Pentagon. Uh, all he wants to do is get back to sea. I've been there. And I think he also wanted then to become an educator at the end of his life. And again, as Elliot said, it surprised me how emotional 
and, and how deeply felt the characters became to me by the end of our creative process. Together. You know, sir, I, I found the book not just uh, emotional, but provocative on a lot of levels. Elliot, let me ask you about this. There's, there's a, 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 I guess, a bit of a secondary character who's a, a retired Indian admiral. Uh, and he, among a couple of characters, uh, makes reference to the idea that the United States isn't what the United States once was or what the Americans think the United States is. And there's a, there's, sort of, there's a lot to unpack in that in terms of what that says about America's role in the world, that what we did play and the role that we've played more recently. And I, I'm wondering, as as you write that book, is that faithfully trying to project what an Indian admiral might think about the United States circa 2034? Or is that also an implicit critique about some recent American foreign policy decisions? Well, I think it's a process of trying to stand in the shoes of someone else. So in writing that character, Admiral Patel, it's the idea of, you know, in 2034, what would an Indian admiral see when they looked back at the trajectory of American policy over the last, you know, 30, 40, 50, or even 100 years? And uh, and you get that critique in the book. It doesn't necessarily say that it mean that, you know, the admiral and I are trying to be didactic and say, this is how it is. We're basically trying to give the reader the, you know, also the ability to kind of hear the story from a number of vantage points, and, you know, and also to interrogate, I think, ideas that are of interest to, to us. Um, you know, the Admiral mentioned, you know, the Thucydides trap, right? The idea of that you have an emerging power that challenges or a rising power that challenges an established power. And so the last time we saw that obviously was uh, Great Britain and Germany in the Second World War. Um, I think one thing that's interesting is if we look back at the last 100 years, right, I'd say we could say the last 100 years have certainly been an American century. And they were an American century that was forged in the conflagration of these two European wars, the first and the second world war. And those were wars that the United States did not start, but the United States certainly finished them. We finished them to our great benefit. And, you know, the result has been this Pax Americana. So I think, you know, when we start, when we start interrogating some of those ideas like the Thucydides trap, right? There's this assumption that exists, I think, when you begin reading the book and also uh, an assumption the Thucydides trap, right? Which is that you have a rising power that we said, Germany, challenging an established power, Britain. Well, who won that war? It wasn't Germany. And I'd argue that it wasn't really Britain. Britain didn't come out uh, in the mid 20th century that hey, it was the United States. We won that war and it wasn't a war that we started. So, you know, these are the conversations that we're having as we're writing the book. They're the ideas and the themes that come up. And it's not, again, it's not to be didactic, but it's to try to, you know, engage with the reader and tell the story. Yes, that is character driven, but it's also getting at some of these larger macro uh, political themes that, you know, we need to engage with. If we're going to be talking about what the world looks like in 2034. Let me add to your point, Jim. Um, yes, in terms of if you look at the trajectory of the American political system and the tensions and the way things are pulling us apart today, um, that that is very much uh, woven into the fabric of the book. And remember, in the book, 2034, the president of the United States is neither a Republican nor a Democrat. Why is that? Um, because these two political parties are pulling each other apart, uh, pulling us apart. The extremes are dominating. And I have two daughters who are millennials, both married to millennials. They look at both political parties and just shake their heads. Um, you know, we sometimes think that somewhere in the Constitution, it says there shall be two political parties. One shall be Republican, the other shall be Democratic. 
it's not in there, newsflash. Um, you know, we didn't start with Republicans and Democrats. We started with Whigs, nationalists, federalists. We end up eventually with Republicans and Democrats. I would say by 2034, 50-50 chance one of these two political parties is gone, maybe two. We'll see. And it, and and it's legitimate to say, nah, it's too soon. That's more like mid-century, maybe. But I, I'll make a fearless prediction on the show that the Republican nor the Democratic Party survives this century. Wow. Well, wow. So, you know, sir, we've got about uh, uh, four minutes left in the show here, and we could probably spend a week talking about this question. But, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a, I'm going to call it a troubling scenario that 2034 uh, paints for the reader. What do American leaders and our allies need to do in the next 13, 14 years to make sure that that does not become a a, a book of prediction? We start by uh, honestly recognizing the high chance that this could happen. And I've used the expression before, but we then need to reverse engineer ourselves to the present. And therefore we need a plan. And a plan has elements in it. One is military competence, ensuring we don't fall too far behind in artificial intelligence and cyber. Has an economic component that uses trade and tariffs sensibly to protect our markets, but not with protectionism, to ensure that China opens their markets. Has a diplomatic component of continuing to tend this garden of allies, partners, and friends. And by the way, pulls India toward us. India, as you allude to, crucial character, diplomatic component. I think there's a communications component where we talk about why our values matter so deeply, democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, gender equality, racial equality. Look, we execute them imperfectly. They're the right values. And then fifth and finally, We need a technology strategy, distinct from the military technology, but a broad technology strategy that ensures, again, that we remain competitive with China, because I assure you, they wake up in Beijing every morning thinking about a 200-year plan. We better come up with a plan to deal with this rising China. I think that's our best bet to avoid, as Elliot says, sleepwalking into a war. Elliot, you're a decorated combat veteran of several years. Do you worry about the toll the wars in Iran and Afghanistan and elsewhere have taken on the American military? Um, I I certainly have my concerns uh, about the state of the U.S. military. I would say those concerns are not necessarily that there has been a, a, a toll in terms of fatigue um, because I think those wars have been fought by successive generations uh, of service members and so distributed. But I am concerned about the civil military divide that exists in the United States right now. And so much as our mil- you know, increasingly our military has become a, uh, a subculture. Uh, and I think, you know, if we look at the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the terror wars, I think one of the reasons they've gone on for 20 years is that every war the United States has fought has been fought under some type of a construct. You know, for instance, the Civil War was fought under a construct where it was sustained by uh, a draft, the first ever draft this country had had, as well as first ever income tax. We look at the Second World War that was characterized by bond drives and again, a national mobilization. The Vietnam War was characterized by a very unpopular draft uh, that ultimately led to the end of that war. 
The war on terror has been fought and sustained through an, with an all-volunteer military and funded largely through deficit spending. So there's been no war tax. And that construct has anesthetized the, the American people to war in ways that I, I personally believe are unhealthy. When we go to war as a country, it should be an existential experience. Like we should be wanting to get out of the war as soon as we get into the war because it's so disruptive to our lives. And now going to war has become very, very easy. Uh, and maybe you can get away with that in war in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but a war like a war with China that we imagine uh, is not a war uh, that would be undisruptive. And if the American conception of war has shifted, it makes it even easier to sleepwalk into that type of a war if we all believe that war is something that other people fight and it happens over there. Gentlemen, that is a profound and important point, and unfortunately, that's where we need to leave it. Uh, Elliot Ackerman and Admiral James Devritus, the book again is 2034. Thank you so much for being with us. That's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For Wayne, I'm Jim, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.